This is the Athletic Baseball Show on the Athletic Podcast Network. Welcome to the Athletic Baseball Show. It is Friday, March 28th. Derek Van Riper here with Keith Law. It has been a very busy week as we have crammed three months worth of transactions into about a week. Thank you to the new CBA for being agreed to last week. We're very excited to have that, of course. And a lot to talk about because we've seen a lot of trades. I've been very curious to get Keith's take on some of the returns for these deals, because it seems like teams that are shedding payroll are not getting very good long-term value back, at least across the board in these trades. But we'll see what the long-term outlook holds. And I'm very grateful that we have baseball formally back, Keith, because if the CBA were still being worked on, we'd be drafting our favorite Irish foods or doing something completely oh, ridiculous. It's not a very long draft either. Oh, yes, it's true. It's amateur night. No, I hate cool. I don't eat beef anyway, but I hate corned beef and cabbage. That's a I rough dish. It. Yeah. My mother made corned beef once when I was a kid, and I walked into the kitchen and said, Mom, it smells like the kitchen threw up. <laughs> Shepherd's pie would be 1 1 in that draft. And- I used to care. I used to like that. I would actually go, I guess this could be English or this could be Irish. Bangers and mash. Big fan of bangers and mash. I think you have to make the draft pub food just to open up the board a little bit. I don't know. Fish and chips is pretty reliable. Yeah. That might be my go-to first pick. I did. I loved shepherd's pie for a long time and I was actually making it at home once. And shepherd's pie is usually made either with lamb or a mixture of lamb and beef, neither of which I eat anymore. So this is like 10 plus years ago. And I was making it and all of a sudden the smell of the lamb cooking just made me nauseous <laughs> and I never touched it again. I don't know why. It's not even rational. That was it. I never ate lamb again after that. Well, on a positive note, you can make a shepherd's pie with ground turkey. Uh, I'm sure it will bother actual Irish people if you do it that way, but it is a, yes, probably. a viable way to uh, make that dish if you're looking for a kind of Americanized spin on it. Let's talk trades. Let's talk about the A's who have really torn it down already. Still some pieces to move. They, at the time of this recording, at least, still have Frankie Montas and still have Sean right. Mania and still have Sean it's Murphy. Early. It's, it's early. It's yet. very early. It's only about 530 on the East Coast. There could be deals done before this podcast sees the light of day. But Matt Olson's gone. Matt Chapman's gone. Chris Bassett is gone. Let's start with the Matt Olson trade because that happened first. Olson goes to Atlanta. How did Oakland do in that trade from your perspective? Christian Pache, a big league ready center fielder, kind of the the headliner there. Shea Langoliers was in the trade. Uh, Ryan Cusick was in the deal. And Joey Estes, four players go back to Oakland in the deal. Is it quantity and quality in that particular trade? I say yes. This is the deal I like of the Oakland trade so far, and obviously there's going to be more to come. I actually really – I'm glad you brought up Sean Murphy. We could talk about him in a minute, but he's especially interesting, especially in light of this deal because the way I see it, the A's get back. Now, Christian Pache is major league ready, gold glove caliber defender in center right now and still has plus power. He was in the majors at 21. I think he's only 23 this year. There is – Plenty of time for him to figure it out. Now he goes to a non-pressure situation in Oakland. Obviously, they're not trying to win right now, and they can uh, they can give him time. So, yeah, that I liked that Langoliers potentially an everyday catcher at some point this year for them. Premium defense, throw, catch, 
power. Probably not going to hit for a whole lot of average, but so what? I can live with everything else basically that they're uh, everything else that they're um, that he's providing. And then in Cusick, one of the best fastballs by quality and velocity in last year's draft class, and I think a guy with pretty high upside as a starter um, who showed some progress with the breaking ball over the course of the summer, and he's got great extension. He's got a bunch of I mean he was a legit first rounder. I thought he should have gone higher than he went. And then Estes more like a lottery ticket further down, probably a reliever. But God, if that's the fourth guy in the package, you did really well. So I think this is the deal that Oakland really maximized the value of the player they were trading. Also they traded at the top, right? Matt Olson is coming off of I think his best year. And so that's the perfect time to trade a player like that. Yeah, I guess there's a few ways we can go. I mean start with Olson from an extension perspective. Getting the longer term deal that Atlanta didn't want to give to Freddie Freeman. There's a pretty key yeah. difference in age there. That was kind of a surprise to me. I mean, I think it's it's easier to justify a trade when you make that long-term commitment because you're not talking about a player who's only going to be around for two years when you gave up four players in the deal. Would you have extended Olsen? And, and do you buy into the adjustments that enabled him to slash that strikeout rate as much as he did last year? I buy into it enough, right? He doesn't have to hold 100% of that for this deal to be worthwhile. That's kind of how I would look at this. I think um, he, you know, we're probably talking about last year as a, as a peak. I think he probably just had his career year. And so that means that this was a good time, obviously, for Oakland to trade him. So I would say he, he probably ends up regressing a little bit back towards the mean. Doesn't lose all of the gains that he made, but... You know what, if he's a five-win player instead of a six-win player, which I think is roughly what he was last year, I know Atlanta fans don't want to hear it, but that's probably better than what you were going to get from Freddie Freeman. And it, I think it justifies the package of prospects that they sent away. It's not impossible that Olsen could continue to be a nearly six-win player. I just think you're, you're betting on the max. I think he maxed out last year. I don't think he's going to be more than that, but I don't think he necessarily has to be way less. Olsen will turn 28 in uh, just about two weeks. So long-term deal keeps him in Atlanta through 2029. There's a 2030 club option. That's a made-up year. So, you know, don't th- don't worry too much about that. 2030? Like, isn't that vision or something? 2030 club option. That is the first time I've seen 2030 written out like that. Yeah, I was okay. I was fine until you said that. <laughs> I don't even want to think about how old I'll be in 2030. Let's talk about the other parts of this. Deal. I just thought about it. That's terrible. Yeah, that's I didn't. Yeah. I just I looked back at my rundown. And I said, I'm going to move right ahead. Keep right on going. I, I think a lot of this with Pache is I think you you still believe in further development as a hitter. He was a league average guy at AAA as a 22 year old last year. Ordinarily, if a player like that hadn't debuted in the big leagues, there'd be a lot of prospect hype around someone who had that kind of power and speed combination along with that defense. And somehow I, I think. We, you and I have talked about this before. Debuting and not not being productive somehow works against players more than not debuting at all. And I think that's exactly what's happened with Pache. How much do you think he can improve on his strikeout rate in the long run, though? Because I think that's going to tell us a lot about his offensive ceiling. Like That's going to be what determines whether or not he's a, a good everyday player or a possibly great one. Yes, um, I agree with everything you just said. And I want to particularly agree with the point about guys being worse off for debuting, right? Pache doesn't get those sort of early, before he was ready, opportunities in the majors, 
we think about him differently. And I, I have been a little bit shocked at how much um, other people seem to think, oh, no, no, he's, he's not that good. Like, he, he didn't belong in the big leagues. We kind of all knew he probably didn't belong in the big leagues, at least offensively. His pitch recognition and his ball strike recognition were not where they needed to be for him to come to the majors. But there was just a particular need, and Atlanta, of course, knew he could play defense at a major league level right away. So they called him up, and I'm not criticizing them for doing so. I do think it was a little interesting that after Acuna went down for the year, they just didn't even bother to bring Acuna back up. But maybe at that point also, they saw that his offense wasn't going to be ready for the majors. And I can understand that. I don't think that's an unreasonable position for them to take. But players get better. Lots of players get better. Mm -hmm. And the idea that he's just, no, he he flopped in his first, you know, what it was, a hundred plate appearance, a hundred plate appearances in the majors. He's just done. I, I can't buy into that. Uh, well, I think, one, just players who debut at 21, you know, they often do figure it out. And two, this guy's got way too much ability for us to walk away from. And particularly when the, the defense is locked in place, that's just there. We're, we're not waiting for the defense to improve. And the power is actually there. It's about decisions at the plate. That is something that can be improved. And the younger you are, the younger you got to the majors, the younger you got to AAA, I think the more opportunity you have to make those improvements. Shea Langelier's Looks like he's close to big league ready if he's not big league ready already. He was the ninth overall pick in the 2019 draft. They already have a catcher in Sean Murphy. I thought they had their catcher of the next three to four years. And it leads to some questions. One, is Murphy the next A to be traded if, you know, Montas and Manaya don't go first? And what does it mean long term for Tyler Soderstrom? Is Soderstrom the kind of guy that's going to just move off catcher anyway because they want to get his bat to the big leagues a little bit faster? So I'll start with Soderstrom. Um, he's not a catcher. Nobody outside of the A's organization thinks that Tyler Soderstrom is a catcher. The interesting problem that they have is his next best position is probably third base, where they also have Zach Geloff, who was their second round pick in last year's draft, who is a capable third baseman uh, and who might have been one of the steals of the draft already. But people saw him in pro ball. They saw him in instructs. Was like, oh, wait, how did this guy not go in the first round? The answer is he was at the University of Virginia. They had him doing some things that you know, are not really conducive to a hitter's development, particularly the, the emphasis on not striking out rather than, hey, you can, we'll, we'll take some strikeouts in exchange for more power. Gallup gets into pro ball. He's pulling the ball more. He is not so defensive, especially in non-two-strike counts. He looks like a completely different player. So that's a long way of saying the A's two best prospects before this spate of deals, probably both third baseman in the long run. Not the worst problem to have, but that is their situation. Soderstrom, I do not believe, is affected by this deal the acquisition of Langoliers and the presence of Murphy, unless it just makes them say, you know what, forget it. We're just going to move you to third base. You know, this is Will Myers. Just go hit your weight in the majors, which, hey, that'd be great. I would totally understand that. Murphy, I mentioned in my column the other day, my reaction to the Olsen piece, um, the, the Olsen trade, Murphy should be traded at this point. And God, if I would be, with the, be on the phone with the Yankees right now, you have three backup catchers on your roster and no starter. Sean Murphy steps in. He's your starter right away. You have him, I believe, for four more years before free agency. Make me an offer I can't refuse. Because Langoliers, Langoliers isn't ready right now. I don't think he's probably ready right now. He'll be ready by the end of this year. And if you're the A's, who cares? <laughs> Take one of the backups, and one of the Yankees backups, and let him be your your everyday catcher for half a season. It's not going to kill you. And then just work Langoliers in. Later on in the season, I think they'd be crazy not to do that. It just seems like way too perfect of an opportunity. 
Do you think there's still one more level for Murphy as a hitter? I mean, for what he's accomplished so far, he's actually an above average player by WRC plus to this point, a 109 uh, through about 650 career big league plate appearances. It's a lot of power. He draws walks. The strikeout rate's not terrible. 25.8% seems pretty good. Obviously, the defense is great. So you you, mm-hmm. you get that he as a floor. Yeah, with, with the power already established. But could we see him maybe bring the K rate down and possibly be a top seven, top eight sort of offensive catcher in addition to the great defense he provides? I'm inclined to say no. I'd be curious if you disagree, but I think this is probably close to what he is. Um, You know, and the more he played, I think we sort of saw what the ceiling is too. Somebody was mad because they said he doesn't walk a whole lot. They're like, he walked all, he walked a lot in 2019 and 2020. Yeah, but those were smaller samples. He wasn't quite playing as often once he was playing every day. I think the book got out on him and okay, you know what? I look it up. He hit 216 last year. And obviously when your average is that low, it's going to pull down your on-base percentage and your slugging. I'll take that back. I think he's he get a 240 pretty easily in the majors. And that would make a pretty big difference, I think, in how we perceive him as a player. And we take him from, as a baseball reference, had him a 2.7 war last year. Could he be a four-win player? Yeah, yeah. I think that's about where you're bumping up against. There's probably just not any further room for improvement beyond that. But oh my God, right? If he's a four-win player and you get him for four years, you know what's that worth? You're talking about probably 12 to 16 wins of value over the next four years at one of the hardest positions to fill on the diamond. They should be able to get a king's ransom for him. Yeah, I would think they would get a nice return. I mean, better than what they got for Bassett for sure. Probably something similar to what they got for Matt Chapman, even if it's not as good as the package they got for Matt Olson. Mm-hmm. We should talk about the the Chapman return. Kevin Smith, who I think came up on this pod maybe a couple of weeks ago as a surprising back of the top 100 guy, he has a place mm-hmm. to play now. He may have had a place to play in Toronto if this trade hadn't happened. He fits somewhere in Oakland. Where would you play him? How would you prioritize him now that he has this clear path to playing time? So I have gone from Kevin Smith skeptic to Kevin Smith fan. I think he should be their everyday shortstop. They'd run him out of shortstop. Kevin, you're getting 500 plate appearances this year. And if you struggle for a little bit, he struggled a little bit when his when he made his debut with the Blue Jays last year, but he was incredible in AAA. Not just statistically, but scouts were coming back to me saying, this is a completely different player than the guy we saw before the pandemic, um, which makes me obviously feel very optimistic about what he might be able to do um, going forward. Uh, as once he gets uh, as he gets everyday playing time uh, in Oakland, I think it'll be better for him actually that he can um, it'll be better for him that he can uh, play regularly in a situation where he is um, at his most natural position of shortstop. Whereas if he'd stayed with Toronto, he was probably going to have to slide over to second base, and where he also um, is not going to have pressure on his job. Right? If he does struggle early, so what? We are not taking the job away from him. To me, that is um, th- that is the ideal situation to develop a player. And it's not that I think he needs a whole lot. I don't think there's a lot left to do here, but I do think that he uh, is in a perfect spot. And I did like the idea of him, love him headlining the trade. I wish the rest of the trade behind him was as good, as po- as positive, but I do really like what I see there. Yeah, Gunnar Hoagland, injured pitching prospect they got back. They seem to target injured pitching prospects in trade, almost getting a little extra value because of the injury. They did this in the Sonny Gray trade, I think, a while back. James Caprillion came back as part of that trade, if I remember correctly. God, that's right. Yep, good call. 
and got hurt a bunch, mm-hmm. right? Got hurt a bunch, right? That it is actually, I agree with you. It is interesting that they're doing that when they have so much trouble with Caprillion. They've, and then Dalton Jeffries and AJ Puck, two draft picks. Jeffries was, had injury issues when he was drafted. Both of those guys are having a terrible time staying healthy. And Sean Manea, who will probably be traded in the next 20 minutes or so, another guy with a ton of injury history, um, you would think that they would not be so eager to target guys with immediate injury histories. And I should point out, Gunnar Hogland, it was Tommy John surgery, and I believe that's it. I don't think he had any other medical issues, certainly nothing that has come to my ears. So there is a difference when we're talking about players who pitchers who've just had one Tommy John surgery and that's it. That's the entire medical sheet as opposed to other guys who've had, you know, little shoulder problems, which I think was actually Jeffrey's thing. His last year at Cal was non-surgical, but there was a shoulder issue. And maybe that was more of a harbinger of him not being able to stay healthy once he got in the pro ball. We've seen him go down this road before. Sometimes it it leads to some eventual long-term value that you wouldn't have been able to get otherwise. The other pitchers in this trade might be guys that see a lot of time in Oakland this year. Zach Logue is a lefty. I knew nothing about him before this trade. <laughs> what does he bring? Is he it's because you didn't read my Blue Jays prospect right up? <laughs> he was not in the top twenty, but he was in the others of note. Um, he's a changeup guy with good control, but not command. It's a low slot. There's some deception there, but it's a tough arm action for him to repeat. Um, so the deception is a trade-off, right? If you change the arm action, you lose deception. Maybe it's easier for him to repeat. I actually probably wouldn't touch him. I would just let him go exactly as is. But the fastball is not special by velocity or by secondary characteristics. He does not have much of a breaking ball. Um, he is a left-handed change-up guy who generally throws a lot of strikes, but they're not great strikes. And his mistakes kind of get hit hard. So I would try him out as a fifth starter. I think it's probably more likely he ends up in some kind of swing role, which is fine. That's not necessarily a bad outcome. Uh, it's just that might be all there all there is there. You need innings if you're Oakland, especially if you're taking this is health true. risk profiles elsewhere. So, yeah, plenty of opportunity could be there. And then Kirby Snead, another lefty, probably fits in the bullpen and probably fits in the bullpen right now. Is he That's all he is. Late inning yep. guy or middle relief guy? Straight up middle relief guy. Needs more of needs to show me he's got more of a third pitch to potentially be uh, what I would think of as a full inning reliever, a guy who could face right and left handers as opposed to being more of a specialist. And I understand that role itself is not as valuable now because you have to face a minimum number of hitters. But still, you could potentially come in. It's like, oh, it's left, right, left. We'll let him face those three guys. But with the understanding, he's not that likely to get the right hander out. Mentioned the Chris Bassett trade. JT Ginn comes back as part of that trade. Adam Aller as well. Aller not really a prospect. Could be another guy that chews up some innings. He could be their fifth starter. He's a great story. Yeah. He went out, I think, on his own basically during the pandemic. He was like, I'm going to be out of baseball. I better figure something out. Go throw a lot. You know, got himself to throw a lot harder, and that changed his entire profile. Um, but he's 28 this year. Yeah, he's, I mean, it's he's just old, at the yeah. age where you can't right. You can't talk about him as a prospect. But he's not nothing. This was not a generic organizational player or something. He's he has some value. Yeah, could sneak into that back-end rotation mix. Ginn was a second-round pick in the draft in 2020, so there's a little bit more familiarity with him. Mm-hmm. How do you see him developing long-term? Is he a long-term starter, or is he more of a reliever for you? He's definitely a starter for me. I'd be interested to see what happens with him in 2022, which will be his second year back from Tommy John surgery. So for folks who don't remember, 2018, he was actually a first-round pick by the Dodgers. Didn't sign. 
went to Mississippi State, where he was going to be sophomore eligible, was very, very good his freshman year. It was 70 fastball, 70 slider, progress with the changeup, never a great delivery. Always, I mean, in high school too, I was, this guy shouldn't be a first-round pick. That delivery is way too rough for a high school pitcher to be taken in the first round. But the stuff was there. I recognized that the stuff was there. And then he blew out right before the pandemic, actually. Had Tommy John surgery. Mets take him in the second round, give him first-round money. This past year, he comes back. It's not the same guy. Suddenly, he's a sinker guy. He's a big sinker baller. Extreme ground ball rates. More like 91-94 instead of bumping sevens and eights like he had been. But more of a pitcher. More of a complete pitcher. And frankly, a guy who I think will be able to work deep into games because he's going to be very efficient. Uh, I love the transition. Maybe you're giving up some ceiling, but you're getting more probability. I'm good with that. I think that I actually think if you would give Bassett, say, 160, 170 innings in the big leagues this year, or give Gin the same workload this year, Bassett will be better. I don't think it would be that big of a difference. Gin is probably not quite ready to get to the big leagues, but he would come to the big leagues and accidentally get a lot of ground balls just by virtue of his approach. Even as he was working other things out, I think he would actually be kind of effective. So I, I thought that was a pretty good one for the, for the A's. So they've got a lot of ways that these trades could eventually pay off. And mm-hmm. I think the question a lot of people would have is, when's the next time you could see this group being talented enough to make a run even at an expanded postseason field. You're talking about the A's? Yeah, I mean, we're talking is, three oof. years out. Uh, Yeah. 2025. Ugh. I'd probably take the over on that, meaning I think it's farther out than that. Eesh. Yeah, it's going to take some time. They are marching to the beat of their own drum in Oakland right now. Like They are yeah. seeing some things in the player pool that a lot of other teams aren't necessarily valuing based on these types of trades they're making. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree with that. Well, some of them they are and some of them they aren't, right? I think the the package they got from Atlanta for Olsen was great. I think getting JT Ginn and a possible right now fifth starter, no upside, but he can pitch immediately in the big leagues guy like Oler, that's good too. It's the Chapman deal. I would have thought Blue Jays have such a good farm system. I was surprised that they didn't get one of the Jays' higher upside guys. You know, that said, I fully acknowledge this in the piece and other there were A's fans pointing out Chapman was not that good last year. He struck out 202 times, second most in the majors. He had multiple, I think, pretty clear vulnerabilities in and around the strike zone. Interestingly enough, if you just threw him sinkers, it wasn't even that he was necessarily missing them, but he was just not doing any damage on those pitches at all. And I say that pitches characterized as sinkers by StatCast. So the pitchers made themselves, we don't call them sinkers, but pitchers with the characteristics we would generally associate with a sinker. Um, Chapman struggled on those pitches pretty dramatically. Now, I'm not saying he can't improve from that, but I talked about them selling high on Olsen. I think they sold low on Chapman. And I understand why they did that, but maybe that explains the less appealing return. Guys tend to think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort, but it's possible to have it both ways. I'm all set for summer thanks to Mack Weldon. The Vesper polo shirt is so breathable you can wear it on the golf course, but it looks classy enough to wear to a party. The Maverick Tech Chino short is ultra flexible, and the Pima Crew Neck T-shirt is perfect for those casual weekends. There's no need to be uncomfortable in your clothing ever again. Some guys just want to look good without calling attention 
attention to themselves. Mack Weldon Apparel gives you understated good looks for understated confidence. Mack Weldon clothes are designed to fit your style and the demands of modern life. They look like regular clothes but feel like the latest in modern comfort. They're the go-to choice for guys who want to look great without even trying. Breathable underwear that keeps you cool, dry, and comfy all day. Crazy comfortable but elevated sweatpants. An upgraded classic polo with antimicrobial silver threads. An ultra-soft antimicrobial tee for when you need to stay fresh longer. That's the Silver Crew Neck T-shirt. Get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code MLBSHOW. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com. Promo code MLB show. I think that's a common thread with what we saw the Reds do. They've made a couple of moves now. Eugenio Suarez and Jesse Winker get traded to Seattle, and Suarez hasn't really been the same player since that shoulder injury. The contract was still, I think it was three more years on that, if I remember correctly. So they still had a little bit of, of, of time where they were going to be kind of stuck with him if he didn't turn it around. It's a lot of time for a guy who looks like that's not the guy. Eugenio Suarez was such a great pickup for them. And they're far from the first team to do this, right? You trade for a guy who isn't even that highly regarded. And he turns out to be a star. Great. We found one. Here's all the money. So, no, 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 no. You, this was great. This was great. But just be a little more conservative in the commitment to the player. That's all. I'm not even saying don't give the guy a contract. Of course, give the guy a contract. But they just went so all in as if that was going to be the player he was going to be forever. The drop-off was way more dramatic than anybody would have forecast. But they ended up in this situation, right, where they just dumped the money and took less of a return from Seattle because, again, they were just trying to dump the money. Yeah, the contract for Suarez runs through 2024. There's a club option for 2025. The Ooh. thing about the Suarez deal, it was 7 for 66 back when he signed it. Average annual value less than $10 million. It's not the kind of contract that you ever have to move it shouldn't Not really true. even in a smaller market it shouldn't keep you from doing other things that you want to do he showed some signs of, of getting right late late last season you look at his september numbers maybe we started to see old suarez again he goes to seattle though jesse winker goes with him i don't like this because of timing keith the nl central is down right now the brewers pitching is great they still have some questions about how they're going to score runs at the level of other playoff caliber teams i think those questions remain unanswered. The Cubs are trying to get better. We'll talk about whether or not they're actually a lot better or kind of the same as they were <laughs> going into last season in a few minutes. And then the Cardinals are having a ton of bad injury luck right now. They have a lot of key players that are lining up to miss some time. So for the Reds to move Winker, basically just to also get away from the Suarez deal, doesn't make a lot of sense because as constructed, the Reds could have made a move or two keeping those guys. And then probably made a run at the NL Central this year. And if it wasn't working out, they could have made moves in July to start paring down the roster then. It just seemed like the timing was really strange. Yeah, I agree with all of that. And it actually feels a bit to me like the owner was just saying, tear it down. I'm tired of spending money. Or you, know, you just wonder at some of these situations. They started this before the lockout. So this can't really be related to the new CBA. But some of these owners who were against basically budging at all for the players too. You wonder if this is some Charlie Finning, like I'm selling everybody type of reaction. <laughs> I, I don't think that's the case with the Reds because remember, they basically gave away Wade Miley and Tucker Barnhart before the lockout. So whether it was just them anticipating a new situation, a different situation in the uh, with the new CBA or just Castellini just saying, that's it, I'm out. I've spent lots of money. We tried to compete. 
we didn't get the results. I mean, that club was, to be fair to the Reds, management and to their fans too, they got smoked by the lockout, right? They were building, building, building. They finally put together their best club and it's a 60-game season. Their best chance and the lockout wiped it out. I mean, it's a it's not quite Montreal 1994, but it just got a little bit of the same aroma as that. Well, I think when you look back at letting Wade Miley go, if, if you're going to play with a, a smaller budget and the Reds do, and mm-hmm. you look at a guy like Miley and you say, well, we've got more pitching coming. We've got Hunter Green. We've got Nick Lodolo. We like Reaver San Martin. we got these other guys we trust to be back-end starters now, and some of those guys obviously have ceilings that are higher than that. I can understand letting someone like Miley go. I can yeah. I can justify that. I can even understand trading Sonny Gray to fix some of your flaws on the big league roster the way you were built because of mm-hmm. that pitching depth. But the Winker thing kills me because I see I still see a level for him where he can play if he's not not an MVP caliber player. He's the kind of guy that gets votes in the MVP race in his best year because he's that good of a hitter. I, I think that's entirely possible. Going to Seattle, the power is going to dry up a little bit. Big park factors change for him leaving Great American Ballpark and playing half his games at T-Mobile Field. Yeah. My one thing with Winker, though, he's got a platoon split issue, like a real legit platoon split issue that does kind of cap the upside, right? Against if all he ever had to do was face right-handed batters, if left-handed batters were outlawed, which I'm sure Rob Manfred has proposed at some point, Winker would be an MVP. I mean, he would be one of the five best players in baseball, I think. Certainly one of the five best hitters in baseball. But you do have to face lefties. And teams are going to keep lefties. The teams in the AL West will keep lefties in the bullpen just for Jesse Winker. And there's such a huge delta between his performance against right-handers, where he's an MVP, and what he does against left-handers, where it's almost like you want to have a pinch hitter available, right-handed pinch hitter available for him. That caps the upside. He's an interesting case because when he was still a prospect, I thought, this guy is so damn disciplined. It's such an intelligent hitter, he'll figure that out. That platoon split will close because he's just, he is that good of a hitter. I remember seeing at-bats of his, he was, might have been his first, it was his first or no later than his second spring training in the Reds organization. And I can still picture where I was standing and I was watching his at-bats in a minor league spring training game. I believe it was actually at the Seattle complex too. It's kind of funny. And watching him and thinking, oh my God, this is, like, his takes were so good for a 19-year-old at that point and thinking, oh, he's going to figure all that out. Then it was much more a question of what kind of power is he going to get to. And he hasn't. He, the improve, he hasn't on the plate discipline side, the improve, the under the pitch recognition side against left-handers. We just haven't seen the kind of improvement that I would have expected. I think I did expect. I bet if you go back to what, everything I wrote about him, I probably said that I thought he was going to do that. I should have said it because I believed it, and it hasn't happened doesn't mean it's never going to happen. Maybe it still will happen, but it hasn't happened to date. And to me, there is a bit of a ceiling on just how valuable a player like that can be for Seattle. Not criticizing the acquisition. I think it's a good acquisition. They didn't give up a ton. They gave up one prospect. I do like Brandon Williamson quite a bit. And they gave up Justin Dunn, who I think I like, but is going to be a terrible fit in Cincinnati. Uh, They didn't pay a ton, but they didn't get a superstar, right? He's not going to be, he could be the third best player in their outfield by the time Julio Rodriguez comes up, right? It's him and Kalanick and Rodriguez, if that's how they choose to align the guys, and he'll be the third best outfielder they have, which is a pretty good situation. 
But as that team gets better, too, they needed some guys who might become good secondary contributors. They were a pretty thin yes. lineup previously. I think adding Winker and Suarez definitely helps them a lot as they try to get to the postseason. Mm-hmm. How did Cincinnati do in this return? It was Brandon Williamson, Justin Dunn, and Jake Fraley. And Jake Fraley, from a, a power speed perspective, has been interesting for a little while. He's just had issues staying on the field and like Winker, he's probably a big side and platoon guy. Yep. What do you make of this return, though? Did the Reds get enough back in terms of long-term value? And he's a Delaware guy. I have to say nice things about the Delaware guy, pride of Caravel Academy in Bear, <laughs> Delaware. Um, he is, I, I think, you got him, right? He's a fourth outfielder for me. He's an extra guy. Um, so what they got was a very good left-handed pitching prospect in Brandon Williamson. Not elite. Um, not a number one starter, maybe not a number two starter, but a guy who's got a chance to be a pretty solid mid-rotation guy. And there's still a little bit of upside there developmentally. I could see little ways in which he would get better. Maybe you got a really good number three there. Justin Dunn would be a fifth starter for almost every club in baseball. I hate the fit for him in Cincinnati. I think he's going to be extremely homer prone there. Um, unless the stuff, and his stuff did come back a little bit last year, but he needs more. He needs just more stuff. The more, like whether it's probably pure velocity is not going to be the answer. More fastball life, better secondaries, something. Or he's going to give up 30 homers and 120 innings this year. And people are going to be like, well, he's terrible. This was a bad deal. No, he's actually reasonably talented and would be a fit for a lot of other clubs. Just I don't like the fit for him in Cincinnati's home ballpark. And then Fraley, who we discussed, this was a salary dump. They used Winker to move Suarez's salary. God, if you're going to rebuild, just go get the best prospects you can and and deal with the money. And just, you know what? We, we signed Suarez to a bad deal. It's not working out. Or play Suarez another year and see if he improves. And then maybe you can trade him for something more. Uh, for You're not essentially just giving him away at that point. Yeah, and the other move, of course, Sonny Gray flipped to Minnesota, has a club option for 2023, very affordable club option. Uh, along with Francisco Piguero, Chase Petty was the return in that deal. Uh, what is Petty going to bring to the table long term? So he was a first round pick last year of the Twins, obviously, since they traded him. Um, so he barely pitched for that organization at all. Um, he is the he was up to 102 as an amateur. I saw him hit 98 as a starter in high school with a slider that's probably going to end up plus. He is athletic, but it's a super high effort delivery with a lot of head violence that does not generally lead to future command it may not be a good good sign for future health i get the gamble on the arm um i actually probably like him better as the return in a trade than i do as a first round pick if that makes any sense i think guys like that you should basically never take in the first round anymore if you're going to take a high school pitcher in the first round and in general that is the wrong thing to do take somebody who is more of the classic projection guy you're waiting on future development as opposed to the guys who throw super hard right now who do just do not have a very good track record of either being effective or staying healthy a deal like this i think is is just a hey kid's got a great arm and he's actually pretty athletic we'll get him in and figure out what we can do prior to these deals i think it was easy to look at the reds depth chart and say we're gonna see hunter green or probably gonna see nick lodolo at some point this year now it seems like we could see both working in the rotation together <laughs> sooner rather than later. Uh, what do yep. you make of, of those two guys for this season? And do you like any of the other options the Reds have? I mentioned Reaver San Martin a little earlier. Good numbers in the minors, not necessarily overpowering, might be more of a, a back-end innings eater type, just getting an opportunity in a very hitter-friendly ballpark. 
Green, obviously the guy I like the most as a prospect. I still think there's tremendous upside there. I think he's, I think long-term, he's got a chance to be a number one starter. He may take some time to get there, right? He's been a little bit of a slow developer because there's so much more that they've had to do. He threw, he had an exceptional fastball as an amateur, um, but it was not, a, it was a very high velocity fastball, but not necessarily a high spin or high movement fastball. She's really had to work on becoming more of a complete pitcher. He's unbelievably athletic. Also one of the most intelligent players I have ever come across in all the time I've been covering this sport. Uh, I am a fan. I absolutely am unabashedly a fan of Hunter Green, the pitcher, and Hunter Green, the person. I believe he's going to figure it out, but it may not happen immediately. Would not be surprised if he came to the majors this year. Worked for a while as a starter, but had some struggles. Had some dip that he took some time to get to the point where he was a capable major league starter. Lodolo, more of a skeptic on him when he had shoulder trouble at the end of last year that my understanding was it was not minor. Apparently, he's over it. He's not going to end up having surgery, but it this for a guy whose delivery just puts a lot of stress on his shoulder is not a real positive. Um, he reminds me a lot of Andrew Miller as a prospect where it was good, pure stuff, but a lot of sliders out of the zone. People aren't chasing on the slider in the zone. Doesn't really have the super effective third pitch to get right-handers out multiple times through an order. That said, I think if you think Lodolo is healthy enough to handle it, you start him out as a, as a starter. You put him in the big league rotation and see what happens. And if he shows that he's maybe not getting enough swings and misses in the zone on the slider, not effective enough against right-handers, then you discuss moving him to some kind of relief or swing role. But you got to try him as a starter at this point. You always aim as high as possible developmentally. If you think it's within the realm of possibility that Lodolo can be a starter, put him there. And then you can always move him down to less challenging roles if it turns out he's not up to it. I think that's absolutely the right way to go. And clearly they have more of a future view right now in Cincinnati than that I would have taken with what they had at the beginning of this offseason. Are you struggling to close deals? B2B selling is tougher than ever, and that's why I want to tell you about LinkedIn Sales Navigator. One more great product from LinkedIn. You're there to network, you're there to look for jobs, you're there to post jobs, and how about LinkedIn Sales Navigator? It's a sales intelligence platform that helps professionals effectively prospect and engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator helps you target the right buyers, surface key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize and shows you hidden allies so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash baseball show. That is linkedin.com slash baseball show for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash baseball show and get started. Let's talk about the Cubs for a moment because I think with expanded playoffs, you should have more teams trying to at least play the middle until July, and then they can decide to sell in July. If they don't feel good about their chances, fine. The Cubs have added a lot. Seiya Suzuki comes over as their their biggest addition. They've added a bunch of role guys now. Jonathan VR, I think, was the signing on Thursday. Angleton Simmons a few days before that. You start looking at the other players they brought in throughout the winter. Clint Frazier was an early addition for them. I kind of like that as a, a by-low move. They are the team that claimed Wade Miley to get some innings. They signed Marcus Stroman. They added Michael Givens and David Robertson. 
Uh, Jesse Chavez back into the bullpen. Chris Martin's there now. Like they, it's it's a, a lot of qu- it's a lot of quantity for sure, but definitely some quality at the higher end with Stroman and Suzuki in particular. How good are the Cubs? Are they at least good <laughs> enough to play the middle after the way they have reshaped this roster? I gotta tell you, I love that they they're actually going for it, right? This seems pretty good, right? There, there was such an expectation that they were just not going to try, right? They sold off all their all their veterans last year. They were all headed for free agency anyway. So it's not there's anything necessarily wrong with that. But it was oh hey, there's there's no way these guys are going to continue trying at this point. And no, actually, turns out that they did continue trying, um, and they were. Uh, they are going to keep trying now. They are actually spending some money too. And and looks like they're reinvesting and they're going to try to build a new core, a new core club for them, for a, a new core to the lineup um, so that they can try to contend. I mean, they're, it seems like they're looking at the NL Central the way you described the NL Central to say, oh, hey, this is winnable, right? This division is, it's not out of the question, right? We're not necessarily, they're not the favorites necessarily, but that team is good enough that they should challenge for the lead in the NL Central and and also, by extension, be able to challenge maybe for one of the new playoff spots. Like, I think that's absolutely within reach for them. And I'm I'm very glad to see them trying to do that as opposed to just saying, nah, we're going to suck for three years and then we'll try to build back up over time. No, they're, they're definitely refocused on the farm system. Farm system has made a lot of progress. I think those trades that they made last July, coupled with a really nice draft class too, have, they've turned that system around. But they're also saying, no, 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 we, we don't want to suck. We're going to try to win now in the short term, too. I love the Suzuki signing. I love the Andrelton Simmons signing. They just get that guy healthy and get him vaccinated. Then he could be really good. I mean, we know he can still play shortstop, but there's definitely more in the bat based on everything he did before, before 2020. Um, but then he had an ankle injury. He's just not necessarily been 100% healthy. I, I think there's plenty more there, to say the least. And Suzuki's got a chance to be a star. Somebody was like, is he Matsui or is he Fukudome? Because obviously we can only compare Japanese players to Japanese <laughs> players. He is a different player than Fukudome. Um, I think he's closer to Matsui for sure. And I like the swing a lot more. I like the approach a lot more. Um, I think he's a better athlete. He's not an elite athlete. He's a much better athlete than Fukudome. And I think that power is going to translate better. Fukudome's big thing was he came over here and the power just vanished. All he did was hit the ball into the ground all, all the time. I don't think Suzuki has that kind of swing. And I think he's... Um, I think he's stronger. I think there's going to be more natural power there. Yeah, I was trying to see just based on projections, say a Suzuki versus current big leaguers to get a better feel for the type of offensive profile we're looking at. And it's surprising to see the projection for Christian Yelich for this year is actually mm-hmm. very similar. I'm looking at the ATC system at, at Fangraphs. You know, a good mm-hmm. average, a really solid OBP, low 20s home run power, and sure. high single digit stolen bases. And a guy that's going to play at or near the top of the lineup on a basically everyday sort of basis. Like that's a really good player. And yeah, e- even if he's not a 35 plus home run guy, if the power doesn't fully translate. That's still, that's an impact player that they did not have. And I think that that gets them closer to that wild card range than they were before they signed him. Yeah, I'm into it. I, I, I buy that projection. That's basically the player I think he's going to be. He has like 38 homers last year in NPV. Okay, it's different. It's, it's it, the pitching is not as good. Particularly the worst pitching in the NPB is like double A pitching here, right? So he's going to lose some power that way. The ballparks there tend to be a little bit smaller, so he's going to lose some power there. But I think the approach is real. I think that the, the understanding of the strike zone is real. 
The one thing I'll say, and this is basically true for every NPB player who comes over and basically true for every KBO player who comes over, they don't work inside the way that pitchers here work inside. And if you go online and watch, like there's a great video that's just all of Seiya Suzuki's home runs from last year. They're all It's all stuff middle, middle away or middle, middle where he can get his arms extended. He's not homering on stuff in, but I also think he's not seeing a lot of stuff in. That's the big adjustment a lot of players who come over who've never played here before who grow up in Japan, grow up in Korea, even grow up in Taiwan, then come over here, that's the biggest adjustment I think that they have to make. I I feel pretty good about him being able to do that. It's so funny to me that the Cubs on the pitching side value velocity so much less than other teams right now. That projected rotation, Hendricks, Stroman, Miley, Mills, and you got Justin Steele and Brault and Keegan Thompson. The Adbert Alzali injury is one that it's bummer to see any player get hurt. He's one of their younger pitchers that I still thought there was one more level in. We've seen flashes of it mm-hmm. in different roles from him. He's dealing with a lat strain, so he's going to be down for probably two months. So it's really going to be a lot of soft tossing guys vying for those spots in the back of the rotation, unless maybe Caleb Killian, who was really good in the fall league, ends up emerging to take on a spot. <laughs> Except the day later. I was there. You got shelled. I, I was there the day he couldn't get an out. That's awesome. It was absolute worst. That's what you want. like, Oh, my God. I mean, it was like very much a joke as I was talking to both Giants and Cubs people, too. It's like I got the worst day of the guy's life. It was so bad. His stuff, he just he walked in. You could tell within three pitches, oh, he doesn't have it. He just didn't have it. His velocity was off. His braking, everything was wrong, Um, which just obviously it happens, too. But, of course, the only time in my life I've ever seen the guy. I'm like, no, he's terrible. What are you talking about? He's not a prospect. I'm kidding. But of course, it's very hard to walk out of the park and be like, yeah, I really like that guy. He didn't get anybody out, but I think he's pretty good. Yeah, I think he's probably their their best hope for an internal rotation candidate to come up from the minors this year and, and yeah. be a good yeah. starter. I think they could have some up and down guys, but he might be a, a cut above a lot of their current back half of the rotation arms. Cubs currently, according to Fangraphs, projected for just under 76 wins, one win ahead of the Reds, third place in the NL Central. I will take the over on our, our Derek and Keith betting pool, Okay, which does not exist. doesn't exist I yet. I will take the over on the Cubs and the under on the Reds. Hmm. What kind of vig do you, do you offer your repeat customers? Oh, I got to think about this one. I almost thought <laughs> I would take the Reds, even though I've been trashing them straight up against the Cubs yeah. still, but I... Maybe you've biased me. I'm just afraid of more moves for the Reds that make the team immediately worse. Like that's that's the fear. I absolutely factored that in, right? <laughs> they're they're going to make at least one more trade. Just like Oakland. We know Oakland... Look, they're clearly going to trade Montas. They should trade Murphy, and they should, they're probably going to trade Manaya too. Yeah. Plenty of teams need that rotation help. Maybe the Cardinals in the NL Central want to keep pace. Maybe they go out and get one or possibly both of those Oakland starters because of the injury issues they're dealing with. Hoping for the best for Jack Flaherty's shoulder, but that would be a huge loss for the Cardinals. Yes. Did not like hearing that at all. Mm -mm. I was not a fan. We are going to go. If you want to check out Keith's write-ups on the many moves that have been made beyond the ones that we talked about on this episode, get a subscription to The Athletic, theathletic.com slash baseball show. Gets you in the door for $1 a month for the first six months. And be sure to check out this week's episode of The Keith Law Show. Joe Sheehan was the guest. A lot of twins talk on there. So if you're saying, hey, how come they didn't talk about the twins on this pod? Well, Joe and Keith already did it on The Keith Law Show this week. That's going to do it for this episode of The Athletic Baseball Show. We're back with you on Monday.